0: Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here as always with my co-host, Trevor Connor. A lot of preconceptions and myths surround the concept of strength training for endurance athletes. Some say you'll put on too much weight. Others say it'll make you a better time trialer. It could make your legs too sore, increase your VO2 max, or conversely have no impact on your endurance parameters at all. Some coaches and athletes swear by it, while others wouldn't get within 10 feet of a dumbbell. We don't blame coaches and athletes for having different opinions. Even the research over the last few decades has been mixed. In fact, the research on concurrent training, doing endurance and strength training at the same time, is a surprisingly new field. Leading the charge over the last decade has been a highly respected Norwegian researcher named Bent Ronestad from the Inland Norway University of Applied Sciences. There is hardly a subject in endurance sports training where Dr. Ronestad hasn't published a respected study. But his numerous studies and reviews have had a lot of impact on the question of concurrent strength and endurance training. Today, we talk with Dr. Ronestad about the debate over a concept called the interference effect, that strength training can interfere with endurance gains and vice versa. And because this is Fast Talk... We focus on whether strength training can improve endurance performance and explore the physiology behind why it does or does not help. Joining Dr. Ronestad, we have someone who's become a Fast Talk regular, Coach Joe Friel, who will talk about whether he encouraged the athletes he coached to strength train. We asked strength training and conditioning coach, Jess Elliott, founder of TAG Performance, about the benefits of strength training with endurance athletes. And finally, we asked Trek Segafredo pro rider Tom Scoinch if he incorporates strength training into his routine. So, either grab a couple 25-pounders or 12-ouncers and let's make you fast.
1: We know you listen to the fast talk to help you discover new ideas and think about your own training but there's a lot more we can do to help you.
0: At Fast Talk Labs, we can help you solve questions and overcome personal challenges. Start with a free consultation.
1: Visit FastTalkLabs.com and you can set up a time to meet with our coaches. Like our head coach, physiologist Ryan Kohler, who's sitting in front of me right now. Ryan is a level one certified USA cycling coach and holds a master's in sports nutrition. Let's talk. I can help
0: you with training, workouts, nutrition, or just push your thinking.
1: Schedule a free consult today at fasttalklabs.com. Well, Dr. Ronestad, it's a real pleasure having you on the show. You know, I'll say this and, and Forgive me, I'm going to sound like a bit of a fanboy again, which I've done on this show before. We are fanboys. It's okay. We are. Yeah. So I actually use an app called Researcher to keep track of new research coming out. And within that app, you can do searches or save searches. And I have one of my favorite searches is I have five researchers that it alerts me whenever those researchers publish a new study. And you are one of my five researchers. I'm always excited when you have a, a new study that comes out. Thank you very much.
0: Nice to hear. (laughs) I was just going to say too, you know, in in the research today, we're talking about strength, but you have made some absolutely incredible sort of discoveries and and research in in a lot of different topics. I know block periodization has been one that's been really interesting for me. So, you know, listeners definitely uh, look up everything that Dr. Ronstadt's doing because it it extends so much further than just the conversation today.
1: So today, though, what we're going to focus on is concurrent strength and endurance training. So meaning, because of our show, we're going to focus mostly on endurance athletes, but you have an endurance athlete that's not only spending time doing their endurance work, but they're also incorporating strength training into their routine. And and Dr. Ronestad, you've done a lot of uh, research on this, but before we even get into your research, I really enjoyed you wrote a chapter where you um, talked about the history of all this. And one of the things I found surprising you talked about Dr. Robert Hickman, but really pointed out that the research on concurrent training didn't even start until the 1980s.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think. And, and, and that's especially that study uh, by, by Robert Hickson in, the, um, in 1980. I think we learned a lot from that study. And, and I think, if anything, actually, on what we know today. I think we mostly was actually shown in that study because he had a group performing strength training uh, and another group performing um, endurance training and then a concurrent group performing both the both, uh, training programs. And just briefly, uh, for the first five, six weeks, the adaptations were similar in terms of the strength training. But then as the last weeks of this 10-week study prolonged there became a difference between the strength training group and the concurrent training group so in my opinion that tells us that okay when you are untrained you got the same adaptations by concurrent training as strength training alone and when you get more trained strength-wise you the endurance training seems to reduce the strength training adaptations and also it's important not just to know this but the kind of training these untrained people were performing uh, because they trained a lot and they trained the strength training was five times a week hmm. oh boy yeah, that's a lot yeah yeah for sure it is when you are untrained and then when you you go into the endurance training program that was um, six sessions per week and it was uh, all sessions were there uh, like uh, all out to fatigue all sessions so you take into account that these people were untrained when they started. It's uh, yeah, actually amazing that there were no inhibiting effects during the first five six weeks. Yeah,
0: that's almost an overtraining study. It almost with right. untrained people on that one, but it, definitely an interesting beginning work on the strength training side of things. Yeah, for
1: sure. So what was interesting is so he really defined this interference effect, and we'll get to that more a little bit later in the show, but he seemed to show that yes, the endurance work does seem to, after about six to eight weeks, as you pointed out, inhibit strength gains, but it doesn't seem like strength training inhibited endurance work at all, like endurance adaptations, which is interesting because you have a lot of coaches that say endurance athletes shouldn't be doing strength work because it's going to hurt them.
2: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And also, if you if you notice the improvement in VO2 max in these untrained people performing concurrent training, they actually had like twenty to twenty five percent increase in VO2 max in ten weeks. So uh, no sign of in, inhibiting the the development of VO2 max for sure.
0: Yeah, and was that a similar increase in the concurrent group than compared to maybe the the endurance only group? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Exactly. So they had uh, similar improvements.
1: That's impressive. So, I know you have researched into this, looking at whether there are benefits to strength training for endurance athletes. So this is the first really big question that we want to ask you. What were your conclusions? Is there a benefit for endurance athletes to include strength?
2: Yeah, my brief answer would be yes. And then it's always a follow-up that it, it, it depends. And But our results seem to indicate that the endurance performance can be improved by performing heavy strength training. For cyclists, we are mostly investigated cyclists. Both female and male cyclists seems to improve their, their endurance performance. Uh, yeah.
0: And have you looked at in different age groups as well, like a younger population versus masters? No, uh,
2: we have mainly focused on well-trained. Cyclists at the age from, uh, yeah, in the 20s. So, but but in the literature, the evidence for uh, effect is maybe m- even more clearer in, in the master athletes or the, uh, the bit older uh, athletes.
0: Interesting. So, in, in your particular research, we have positive effects regardless of gender. We have positive effects maybe regardless of the uh, training status as well.
2: Yeah. So, it, it seems to that there is a potential to increase your, uh, your cycling performance by adding uh, strength training.
1: So I know there was some research earlier on, 80s and 90s, that looked at whether strength training could help endurance athletes and had concluded it really doesn't because they were studying VO2 max and economy and it doesn't seem like strength training will help VO2 max. There's mixed results and economy. So I guess my question to you, and this is what I found really interesting in your research, is where are the benefits? How does strength training help endurance athletes?
2: Yeah, probably it's we have the determining factors for endurance performance. And probably the, it seems like there is a small benefit on, on, um, on different places that ultimately adds up making the performance better, in my point of view. So... Take, for instance, the the work economy, cycling economy uh, measurements. As I read the literature, there is uh, indications that when you are untrained or or moderately trained, that you see an improved cycling economy when we're measuring it like the traditional way uh, by doing um, like five minutes at maximal uh, exercise boats below threshold uh, and you are in a quite fresh state, Um, there is in indications that work economy measured this way can be improved. Uh, What we have done in some of our studies, we have have, uh, prolonged these submaximal measurements. And in my first study, uh, which was a part of my PhD, we we had the the ride cycling for three hours at at a low intensity. And then in the last hour of those three hours, we saw an improved economy, which we did not see in the beginning in the fresh state. And we finalized those three hours of submaximal riding with a five-minute all-out performance test where they should uh, have as high mean power output as possible. And then we saw that the strength training group, which improved their economy during the last hour or those three hours of submaximal riding had quite large improvement in five-minute power compared to the control group. So maybe then you have to induce some sort of fatigue in order to see the benefits of the strength training in terms of the cycling economy, which then might have saved energy for the last five-minute bouts of that test.
0: I'd love to talk to you about that research protocol because, you know, as you pointed out, the traditional way of measuring economy, we didn't really see any improvement there. And that seems to be how most people would fall back to the laboratory-based measurement. What inspired you? Did you have any insight into the fact that strength training might improve during longer durations. Why did you choose to do this sort of longer thing? And I love that you did because I think that that's very relevant for people who are out on the road.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that thing you're mentioning there is is one factor because we know that in especially road cycling, that the cyclists are cycling for many hours. And if they are just sitting in the peloton and waiting, if toward the final push uh, towards the end of the race. So one part of our choice was to imitate real competitions. And then, of course, we had in back of our head potential mechanisms why strength training could in theory improve uh, performance and also work economy. And some of those uh, are uh, maybe easier to detect in a more fatigued state than in a fresh state. And then we had a discussion Actually, whether it should be two or three hours, some maximal cycling. And I was the PhD student who was supposed to do all the work. So I tried to argue carefully that two hours might be enough. (laughs) (laughs) But then I had some supervisors and there is a reason why you have some supervisors. So then they they argue that three hours should be good. So of course, we went for three hours and uh, afterwards, uh, I do not regret that choice.
1: Well, I was going to say, you you are touching, there. there's an expression in the professional peloton that you're touching on, though. I, I hate to tell you, it's even longer. So I can't tell you how many top coaches and, and professional athletes I've heard say, you know, it's cycling is not about how hard you can go for five minutes. It's how hard you can go for five minutes after four hours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because, you know, professional races tend to be in that four to five hour range. But yeah, for most athletes, uh, a bike race is going to be in that kind of two to three hour range. Yeah, but for some of us, it's the first five minutes that matter. Trevor, come on. Well, yeah, I mean,
0: <laughs> five minutes off the,
3: when, off the when, line. When it's the
0: only thing you're good at. I'm, I'm a one-lap wonder when it comes to cyclocross <laughs> racing and, and everything else. Rob um, just attacks off the line, it, gets away, and then he's like, I'm done. Well, five you, minutes. You, you get the photo opportunity. Everyone thinks you're winning the race, and then you just drop to the back after. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe I need more strength training.
1: But going back to this, uh, this is something I really loved, is at least one of your explanations for why this is. And it touches on something we've talked a lot about in the show, which is you are improving the cross-sectional area of those slow-twitch muscle fibers. So at those sub-threshold intensities, you can rely more on slow-twitch muscle fibers,
2: which theoretically don't really fatigue. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one uh, possible explanation. Of course, it's kind of difficult to really investigate it, but uh, kind of seems um, intuitively uh, like... a. Okay, explanation. One, okay, explanation. And you've seen some downstream improvements that might
0: be related to that, like increased glycogen content in the muscle after a longer duration of riding. Uh, are there other things that clue us into the fact that that might be what's happening?
2: Well, we don't have too much um, information on that, but I think there is an interesting study from from France, actually, in in three where they uh, after. Uh, Period of heavy strength training performed a two hour submaximal riding. And, and in that study, they measured EMG activity, which then, um, as anticipated, gradually increased during those two hours of cycling at the pre test. But at the post test, during the second hour, this inclination increase in EMG activity disappeared. And that could be interpreted as the increase was due to an in- increase activation of type 2 muscle fibers at the pre-test. But then at the post-test, maybe type 1 fibers were still contributing so much that you didn't have to recruit type 2 fibers in the second hour. Which makes a lot of sense. This could be an indication of this.
0: Yeah. And I think that this topic is so broad. There are so many different mechanisms that You know, everybody has to understand that there are different groups out there that are maybe uh, researching different aspects of it. And so I love that we can pull from all of these different researchers in addition to yourself. And I think that our audience is happy to hear kind of of all of the different research that's
1: out there. Now, going back to your research, you did find other gains to strength training. And I was interested in asking you about these. So the other ones that you brought up were a greater anaerobic threshold power, particularly riders could ride at a higher percentage of their VO2 max. You also pointed out that the strength training did improve anaerobic power, which is really critical at the end of a race.
2: Yeah. So in the study that we, we performed... Um Yeah, no, I think it's uh, seven years ago on female riders. Then we measured VO2 during a 40-minute all-out performance test. And we saw that uh, after the strength training period, these females, uh, it was on female riders. So they actually had a higher utilization of VO2max. And that correlated with the increased uh, cross-sectional area of the thigh muscles. So... um, Yeah, uh, we found that uh, very interesting, uh, that increasing the muscle mass, in theory at least, could be an explanation of the improved performance. And then by uh, increasing the fractional utilization of U2max.
0: I want to dig into the increased cross-sectional area in a little bit, but you just raised a really interesting point about this male versus female study For the results of that, does that indicate maybe that women, female riders might have an increased benefit from strength training? Or do you think that that's just something, one small finding in part of maybe a larger body of work?
2: We didn't measure factional utilization during the 40-minute performance test in the male study. So so unfortunately, we are not able to to direct uh, compare those two studies. But if we see at the percentage improvement in that performance test, it was quite similar between male and and females. But what was different was that we we also saw an improved cycling economy during the blood lactate profile and also during the second hour of the three hours submaximal cycling. So maybe we can say that the effects of the strength training seems to be even more clearer for the females uh, and maybe thereby indicating that maybe there is a bigger potential amongst them based on, on these two studies, at least.
1: Yeah, I found it very interesting. You saw improvements in economy in women, but you didn't see the same improvements in economy in men. Yeah. And I know you weren't able to to elucidate on the mechanisms for that, but it would be a really interesting thing to to find out.
2: Yeah, but then, of course, the females were likely at a slightly lower training status than the males in, in our studies. So so that also kind of complicates the picture. Confounding yeah. variable there.
1: So, Dr. Ronstad, I want to go back to what we we mentioned earlier and just dive a little deeper into this. You said that there is an increase in, in that peak power, in that that anaerobic ability to generate big power.
2: Yeah, and, and probably that's related to uh, increased muscle mass, and also maybe uh, improved force transmission. <laughs> could also theoretically be a be a explanation for that. But of course, that, that ability is, is crucial in, in many situations in a cycling race.
0: And I think it's interesting that you bring that up because oftentimes in research, maybe somebody does a time trial or a time to exhaustion at a steady work rate. But really what we're interested in is performance out on the road. And oftentimes that can involve changes in power, but it can oftentimes involve going uphill and, and downhill and is there a fear that with this increase in cross-sectional area that we're saying is a benefit, is there a fear that, say, somebody's watt per kilogram threshold is going to go down? Is their performance going to suffer, even though all of these laboratory measurements that we're talking about are improving, are they going to race their bike better?
2: My short answer will be yes. And that's uh, due to the fact that if we divide the, the power output uh, by the body weight, of the cyclists, Uh, then we see an improvement in that variable as well. Meaning that the increase in power is larger than the increase in body weight or body mass. And that being said, none of our studies actually find a significant increase in in body weight for the strength training uh, riders. But of course, I know that many uh, riders fear uh, gaining weight and uh, they are afraid of being like yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger or whoever you you, you want to compare it with, uh, but but um, <laughs> but it doesn't seem to be like you get a lot of uh, muscle mass increase, uh, and, and and one of the reasons is is, is probably because uh, a large amount of endurance training seems to reduce this uh, this gain in in muscle mass. Let's take a minute and hear
1: from Joe Friel and whether he thinks strength training helps cyclists and if there's truly a concern about gaining weight.
3: Yeah, I almost always use strength training with the athletes I've coached. There have been exceptions. Uh, Interestingly enough, I've coached a couple of bodybuilders. There's absolutely no reason for those bodybuilders to do strength training. We've got to do just the opposite. We've got to lose some of the muscle mass they've created over the decades of lifting weights so they can have better endurance, less weight to move around. But what I found with most endurance athletes is they, if we're if we if we're smart about their training, their strength training, they won't gain excessive muscle mass. They may start to put on some muscle mass because in, in the winter, because in the winter, especially at the start of the base period, like the first six to eight weeks of the base period, we're going to be doing fairly serious strength training, two, maybe even three times a week. And they're going to be using some heavy loads toward the end of that six or eight week period of time. And for, for some athletes, they'll start to gain some muscle mass. And usually where I'll see that is in the shoulders, uh, biceps, triceps, chest. That's where it'll start to stand out. And I, what I know is going to happen is they're going to become much stronger up there. And that's somewhat of a handicap, especially if they're a cyclist. That's something we really don't need. But as we start to move out of that, that phase where we're emphasizing strength training and move into more of a, a maintenance phase, what I know is that muscle mass is going to go away because we're going to cut way back on strength training. It's going to become less than secondary. It's going to become tertiary. It's going to become something we do in a very limited way as we move out of that early base period. So early base period, we're working on strength and we're trying to gain muscle mass that is specific to the sport as much as possible. That's that's really our focus is sports specific. And as we move away from that period of time, those few weeks, now we're going to give up some of that strength but we're going to maintain all we need to perform at a high level when we're on the bike or we're running or whatever whatever the sport may be. We're going to maintain that as we move into the remaining part of the season. And that excess muscle, if they did gain any, is going to be lost. But again, most athletes don't, endurance athletes, don't put on excessive muscle mass. It's somewhat unusual to see that happen, but it happens rarely.
0: And another important fact here, too, is that what we're talking about for strength training we're talking about exercises that primarily work the muscles associated with running and cycling. And so when we say there's an increase in that cross-sectional area of the muscle, we're still talking about an increase in a relatively small amount of body mass. We're not talking about making big pecs and big delts and big lats. We're talking about improving your, your thigh muscles, your quads, your hamstrings, your calves, your, your lower body, your glutes, and everything else.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you if you if you are so lucky that you are actually able to gain half a kilo or one kilo of uh, of extra muscle mass in those muscles, um, putting you forward on the bike, making the power in the in the pedals, I have no doubt that that would be a uh, performance enhancer.
0: Yeah, it's a useful increase as opposed to Christmas time when my kilos are not so useful anymore.
1: Yeah. I still have, so my nephew he was a junior cyclist and very serious about his cycling and I still remember my mother so his grandmother asked him to help carry in the groceries from her car and he refused because he was worried about putting muscle mass on his arms right. from just carrying the groceries. <laughs> yeah.
0: some, some milk gallon bicep curls on the way in the door.
1: But you know, I, I can tell you, I always, when I was at my most serious about cycling, I did a lot of lifting. And I am actually somebody who can put on muscle mass fairly easily. And even despite that, with all the heavy lifting I did, I would say the difference in my body mass when I was doing heavy lifting versus the several years where I did no lifting at all was less than a kilogram. Yeah. As you said, you're not going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger.
0: You're not. Do we want to dive into the mechanisms for that a little bit? Why endurance training doesn't make people swole or or prevents them, you know, from,
1: from getting bulky like everybody fears. That is an interesting question. Dr. Ronestad, do you have any thoughts on, on why you don't see a lot of endurance athletes get really big?
2: yeah well there are suggestions um on the molecular level but i'm from the top of my head and I, I think maybe we don't have to complicate it that much because um if you are doing uh a strength training session after a endurance session because what we are talking about now is is people like training uh, seven eight up to 25 hours per week of endurance training in in that case the strength training has to be performed somewhat close to an endurance session and then then we, we see that uh, the endurance session your ability to lift like for the first six hours after a session is, is reduced and so you're not able to, to lift as much and maybe also the quality i mean the, the mobilization of, of lifts are not that good and uh, your glycogen stores might be lower, which we also know affect the, the the strength training adaptations and also the the anabolic response to the strength training session. So and and yeah, and the, the residual uh, fatigue from the endurance training. So so I think there are some some kind of obvious explanation as to why you don't respond in the same way when you have all these hours with endurance training packed around the strength training sessions. And in addition to that, to optimize muscle gain, you should be in a slight positive energy balance, which is rather seldom for an endurance athlete to be. So there are some um, some explanations as to why you might see that the strength training stimulus is not optimal and thereby maybe you don't get the optimal muscle growth from the strength training.
0: I think it's interesting if we broaden this out a little bit, and I know that we can be very uh, cycling focused. I think that we're all cyclists. We all love riding, but we also know that there are benefits and implications in the running world as well. And one study that I was reading and, and of the dozen to prepare for this, I forget which one, indicated that perhaps endurance running training would impair uh, strength improvements uh, in runners more so than in cycling. And I believe that they hypothesized it was some the acute damage, you know, that occurs from the eccentric contraction. But what I also found really interesting is that there is a great potential for improvement in running because of strength training when we talk about economy and everything else. So it, it's just interesting to see how we know that there is a, a net positive across these two different endurance sports but that running is just a slightly different situation given the method of that exercise.
2: Yeah, I think uh, the evidence for improving running economy is actually larger than improving cycling economy When we are reading the literature. And and, uh, probably that's due to what you just mentioned by the eccentric phase of the running uh, stride, where probably you kind of optimize the muscle tendon stiffness in order to utilize the elastic, energy. So yeah, so for sure for running it's uh, also great benefits and in terms of modes of strength training it seems like both plyometrics, explosive strength training and kind of more traditional heavy strength training, all those modes of strength training seems to have a positive effect on uh, running performance while it might not be so clear that all these options is beneficial for cycling performance.
1: Yeah, I found that interesting in your research because I've seen studies that have said otherwise, but you did bring up that for strength training to be beneficial for cyclists, it needs to be heavy and there needs to be sufficient volume. And you pointed out that the more explosive, so using much lighter weights and lifting it very rapidly, that that type of strength training doesn't seem to have uh, benefits for cyclists.
2: Yeah, the way I read the literature that seems to be be the case and and if i should suggest something i, I would suggest that this this kind of uh, lower load but explosive type of strength training is very likely to affect the muscle tendon stiffness mm-hmm. which uh, for sure have an important impact on the running economy but the impact in when you are cycling with almost only uh, concentric movement doesn't seem to be so clear. And we know that that type of training is not so beneficial for the muscle cross-sectional area.
0: Because we're talking about there's maybe a threshold in the strength training that induces these beneficial adaptations, I want to address the question that at least 50% of our listeners are thinking right now, which is, well, I do my strength training. I, I ride up hills at low cadence. I put a lot of tension on my muscles. I don't need to go lift weights. Does that cross the threshold? Is that enough? I suspect not. But I want to hear it from you.
2: Yeah, I agree with your, your thoughts on that. But I don't think that is sufficient for what we are discussing now.
0: Yeah, so locate and cycling is probably beneficial for things in general, but when we talk about these strength adaptations, maybe that doesn't induce that adaptation. Well, there
1: was a whole study on that comparing big gear training to strength training, and, and the conclusion of the study was they're not the same thing. They don't produce the same benefits. Yep. The only exception they found in that study was if you put in a ridiculously big gear and just try to grind it over for six, six seven seconds, you, you sort of get the same effect. Yeah.
0: And patellar tendonitis and uh, everything else to go with it. So, uh, yeah.
1: Before we dive deeper into the mechanisms behind how strength training helps endurance athletes, let's check in with Jess Elliott and hear her thoughts on the matter. Why is it beneficial for cyclists to, to weight train?
4: Well, I think it just, it improves performance. You know, it makes your body a more efficient machine. It's kind of one of those things we talk about a car on a racetrack, right? And so, I'm not gonna make you better at racing per se. Like, you still have to drive the car, you still have to ride the bike, but I can build your body to generate more force and be more resilient to force, which is gonna improve your performance. So essentially my job is to make sure if we go back to that racetrack analogy, I wanna make sure that the car It's just a finely tuned machine that can actually do everything that the driver wants it to do. So same thing. I want your body to be another tool that's going to empower you to race at your full capacity. I don't want it to be something that's going to hinder your performance and take away from where you're trying to go.
1: And I know sometimes cyclists struggle with this because they're always looking for what's going to give me more watts? You know, is this going to give me 10 more watts? Is that going to give me five more watts? So what you're saying is this is not so much... You're, going to, you're not going to so much see big improvements in your watts. What you're going to see is your body's ability to maintain what you you build on the bike better. Is that what you're saying?
4: Uh, actually, I don't know that I'd say that because still, you know, I'm looking for force production and rate of force development. And so, you know, my... My support of heavy weightlifting, and obviously, you know, you don't do that every single day. You know, you're not pushing to your max every single time you go into the weight room. But what it teaches you is it teaches your body the ability to strain. And so if I can lift something at 300 pounds, 100 pounds is going to feel a lot better versus if my, you know, kind of repetition weight is 100 pounds. 50 pounds is going to feel a lot better. But if I can train you to be stronger at 300 pounds, 100 is going to feel like nothing. But if all the time you're training like body weight or maybe 20 to 50 pound weights at a given time, 100 is still going to feel like a lot of work. So we're going to see a lot of that adaptation. Yes, you're going to see some power output uh, changes both in Increased force production, but also that increased rate of force production, so that time factor, the time rate of performing work. But in addition to that, it's going to change that RPE rating. And so things that maybe were really taxing before, it's going to feel like nothing because your body has learned to generate force at much higher levels and tolerate that. So everything else is going to feel significantly easier. So it's going to give them more gas in the tank to work with.
1: So it's kind of what they're saying in the research that you're not necessarily going to see VO2 max improve, which is entirely aerobic anyway.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: But if you are riding at 250 watts with the strength training, that 250 watts is going to feel easier and be more sustainable. Is that what you're saying?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're going to see all sorts of physiological adaptations. You know, your vasculature is going to change. Your blood pressure is going to go down. You're going to see that change. Your ability to tolerate higher levels of lactate is actually going to change as well, too. So instead of getting completely tanked at three to four millimoles, you're actually going to be able to withstand some of those higher lactate levels for longer because you've trained your body anaerobically, but because of that aerobic foundation, your body's also going to be able to clear it. So it's going to make you more tolerant to performing at higher levels and at higher demands for longer periods of time.
0: Listeners, this week we have a special freebie for you. After this episode, head to FastTalkLabs.com to see our workshop, Does Strength Training Make You Faster? with Dr. Stephen Chung. In this brief video, Dr. Chung explores whether strength training can actually make you faster on the bike. Just log in and sign up at our free listener member level to find the answer. This offer ends April 24th, so visit FastTalkLabs.com
1: today. So we talked about the mechanisms, and I did want to dive into this because you, particularly in a recent review that you wrote, you covered some of the the mechanisms that may explain these strength gains, and I just quickly jotted them down, and there's a ton. So you, we've already talked about that greater contribution of type 1 fibers, but you also brought up the, the shift of fast-twitch fibers from the, the 2X phenotype to the 2A, you mentioned increased tendon stiffness. You talked about spreading the work across greater muscle mass and also the rate of force development. So it seems like there's a lot of ways in which strength training can help endurance athletes.
2: yeah, so yeah, so there are a, a lot of possibilities uh, possibility to explain that it can improve performance. One thing that
0: I found really interesting reading this and and my apologies, Dr. Ron said, I don't remember if this was your research or or different groups is on the rate of force development. And the potential mechanism for that being beneficial is that by increasing the rate of force development in the muscle, there was also increased time where the tension was lower. And because the tension was lower, there could be improved blood perfusion into the muscle and through the capillary beds and, and deliver more nutrients. And it it's just it, it's so funny to think that there's something so small right because we're talking force development in in milliseconds that might have an effect that ultimately leads to improved performance that a, a few more milliseconds of blood flow could make a difference
2: yeah well we had one study where we actually saw that the strength training group the angle of peak torque during the pedal stroke usually it's around um three o'clock, or if you use degrees, it could be like uh, 90 degrees. Mm -hmm. And what we saw was that it it occurred a little bit earlier, not much, but like going from 91 to 87, so a little bit earlier. And that small increase, the the changes in earlier peak torque actually correlated with improvement in 40-minute mean power output. And that was actually a quite surprise for me that that we actually would see a correlation between earlier peak torque and improved mean power when you're cycling 40 minutes all out. That is interesting. Can I ask one follow-up question on that?
0: Did they begin their torque increase sooner and hold it to the same endpoint? So, did they apply force for a longer duration, or was the duration the same? It just occurred earlier in the, in the cycle. Well, we
2: don't have data on, on when they started.
0: You just have the peak sort of data was yeah, occurring. Yeah.
2: Okay, yep. Exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. Makes sense. Uh, but, but, but in theory, as, as you say, uh, it could in- improve blood flow. And then very many people say, okay, yeah, and that's the ex- explanation why you can improve work economy. Sure. But I do not follow that. Uh, <laughs> rationale <laughs> because then then we say that okay we gives the muscle more oxygen okay and then we expect the muscle to react by using less oxygen i'm not quite sure that will happen uh, but i totally agree that it's likely to improve the performance as you said by improving the blood flow like improving the oxygen supply and 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 uh, taking away the waste produced in the muscle cell. So in theory, it, it could explain their improved performance, yeah. So
1: something I've been interested in, and, and this had, wasn't touched on in any of the studies that I read, so it might just be this hasn't been researched, but there certainly has been research in cyclists showing that one of the things that can hurt economy is co-contraction, where you, you have antagonist muscles that are firing at the same time during the pedal stroke, and that can reduce the, the power you can put out. You know, one of the reasons I've always explained to my athletes that they should do strength training is it does improve that neuromuscular recruitment and can reduce some of that co-contraction. Have you seen anything about that? Is is there anything to that?
2: Uh, no, I haven't seen anything on that. Well, you heard it here first.
0: Dr. Trevor Conner completely <laughs> made it up. Is, 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 <laughs> is spreading hogwash. I, I know what side... I, I'm on Dr. Ronstad's side on this one, you know Trevor he has all the credibility and you just lost all of yours so uh listeners
1: <laughs> so that was basically I sounded really smart and that was totally pulled out
2: of nowhere so there we go <laughs> but if, if i'm go if I'm going to comment on it, I don't actually think that what you are doing in the in the gym will affect the the, the coordination or the muscle activation activation during the pedal stroke because we know that the neural adaptations uh, is extremely specific to what you train. And there's a quite big difference between what's happening in the gym and the movement on the bike. And most of these people, they have been performing this pedal stroke quite many times and, and much more than what they are doing for those contractions in the gym. So that the gym stuff should improve the coordination and the muscle activation during the pedal stroke, I'm not quite sure of that.
0: So at the very local level, we know that we have improved motor unit recruitment with strength training, right? When, when we get really, really detailed, but perhaps if we back up larger and we look at whole body coordination of muscle groups, we might not be able to affect that with pure strength training alone.
2: Yeah, I think so. And then maybe the good alternative is to do really short-term sprint efforts on the bike or while running or uh, while cross-country skiing, Uh, then you get the specifics in the neuromuscular system.
1: So we mentioned this at the beginning of the show, and I think this is a really important thing to bring up about concurrent training because I know this is is a bit of a controversy in the research. There's differing opinions on this. But there is this question of the interference effect. Does combining these two modalities hinder one another? So we've already talked about there doesn't seem to be a ton of evidence that uh, strength training hurts endurance performance. As a matter of fact, we just had a long talk about how it benefits endurance performance. But there is this question of does endurance training hurt strength gains? And I know there's, there's been two meta-analyses have died into this and one of them was yours which you published back in, in 2021
2: I'm really interested in what were your conclusions yeah well for most of us performing two to three strength training sessions per week and two to three endurance training sessions per week the overall message is that there is uh, almost no interference effect if anything maybe on the ability uh, to, to exert uh, force rapidly, rate of force development. But when you have like two, two sessions per week of strength and endurance training, meaning a, a quite moderate, low to moderate training volume, there doesn't seem to be any interference effect.
0: And when you say uh, maybe a decrease in the rate of force development, I'm not sure that the average person would even be able to detect something like that. I I think perhaps, right, if you're lifting or you're, you're doing, you know, a plyometric exercise on a force plate, then we can measure the change in this curve. But to the end user... I mean, come on, right? It, it's not like it's a it's not like it's altering your life and and suddenly you're you're a wimp and you can't lift anything and, and everyone makes fun of you.
1: Oh, watch me do some plyometrics. You will see my decrease in force production. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> As Trevor Keep it off the ground. I, I've had coaches like tell me, you know, jump off of this box and then do a second jump, the plyometric move, and then I do my second jump, and they're like, You were
2: supposed to get off the ground. No. Like, I tried. <laughs> Yeah, so so uh, so I totally agree. So overall, there is no uh, interference. Yeah.
1: So the thing I want to ask you about, because we basically just said there really isn't an interference effect, but there's been so much written about this, uh, the the AMPK theory, which is this notion that endurance training, and I believe it was Dr. Atherton who who proposed this theory, but it was a, a theory that endurance training upregulates AMPK, and AMPK seems to then essentially block the, the pathways used in the development of hypertrophy and strength gains. So that's my interest. You're, you're basically showing there is no interference effect. So why has so much been written on this?
2: Yeah, well, those studies in the beginning uh, were performed in animals. And it, it seems like this uh, this signaling uh, kind of blocking seems to be more pronounced in animal models than in human models. Mm. So. Um, yeah, uh, even though it's it's a it's a kind of appealing hypothesis, it it, it seems to at least lack some support for um, at least everyday people <laughs> training uh, like four sessions per week. It might be a, a bit different when you are training ten hours of endurance per week, but um, for the everyday or the the, the normal person, it, it doesn't seem to be
0: the case. If we stay kind of in that rabbit hole you know, mTOR is something that people are going to call on a lot when we talk about strength training. And I think that we all associate that with uh, increases in muscle mass and more the anaerobic side of things. But in preparing for this, I read at least a half a dozen studies that tied mTOR to mitochondrial biogenesis, uh, to oxidative capacity, and so if we are utilizing uh, mtor regulation with our uh, strength training that alone could have uh, improvements in our oxidative capacity and other pieces of that pathway one particular study you know when when they introduced uh, rapamycin you know, there was a decreased uh, gene expression for pgc1alpha so even though we always assume that the strength only can improve one thing because of this one pathway. That pathway also has aerobic and endurance implications as well. I don't know if that was a yeah. statement or a question, but,
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, but. But I mean, the big point that you actually are, are making, uh, I think, is that the body is uh, quite complex, and and if we and uh, I think it's too simplistic j- just to focus on on one um, small piece of this big complex picture. And and also when you when you're looking at these acute studies on on signaling and the effect of different um, training modalities, it seems like everything is exploding. And uh, and, uh, yeah, you you could conclude that to to maximize the muscle gain, you should perform a concurrent session of both strength and endurance in an untrained person. But then the the picture seems to to slightly change when you are getting more trained than at least to make the job easier for us.
1: and to take a quick step back, we throw out a lot of big terms there and Rob, that's my job whatever <laughs> <Forever>. <laughs> I can do it too. I
0: well, just choose not to
1: we we, we threw out um, a lot of big terms. so the 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 simplified explanation of this is, In early research, they basically said there there seems to be one molecular pathway for endurance gains and there's another molecular pathway for strength gains. So the endurance is that AMPK, which then activates PGC1-alpha. Strength gains appears to involve mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin. And so they had them quite distinct and basically said you got the one pathway for endurance, you got the other pathway for strength. And Dr. Ronestad, what I'm hearing you say is it's really not that simple and you're seeing... Both pathways being involved in in both forms of, of of adaptations, so we just can't simplify it that much.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also regarding PGC one alpha, you have a, a splice uh, PGC one alpha four yep. that uh, actually is involved mostly in strength gains in in muscle hypertrophy.
1: Going with what you were also saying, that seems to only really activate in well trained athletes. Yeah. All right, let's pull back a bit from the heavy science and hear from World Tour Pro Tom Skoinch and his thoughts on how to incorporate strength training. So my question to you is, do you lift?
5: I do. I was I was thinking, are you going to finish with, do you even lift, bro? But yeah, I do. <laughs> I actually always do start in November, but I always try to keep it going as long as possible. But uh, usually the obstacle to keep it going is, uh, like let's say into May even is that you start doing stage races. And if you do a week of zero weightlifting and then five days later, you have the next race, then uh, you can't really throw a session in between those two because you just have to recover. And if you, even if you do get in one session, you're just going to destroy yourself uh, because the body, yeah, easily sometimes forgets how to deal with the strain of weightlifting. But uh, yeah, I'm a, I am a fan of uh, hitting the gym, not just for heavy weights, but also mobility. And it's nice to do it in a gym just because it changes the environment and you kind of can focus on it uh, a little bit more.
1: And do you have a concern about putting on excess muscle mass or do you find that's not an issue?
5: Uh, that is also sometimes uh, why I don't really restart in the second part of the year. Because in the second part of the year, you do hit those long mountain passes in France quite a bit. So I do skip the weight training in the second part of the year. But I think that uh, if you are sensible enough, you can definitely manage to keep the weight down and uh, still be weightlifting. And obviously cycling in general is um, pretty easy on the bones so getting some weightlifting getting some running in is always uh, good for bone density and overall health and being more than just a human body that can pedal bicycles but also exist
0: well all of this is is really deep yes should we take a step back should we talk about some practical applications for people some just nice actionable things to to take away? How do, how do we implement this?
1: I'm just excited
0: we brought up pg on Alpha, so I'm happy. I'm just excited I didn't say PCG because I always transpose it in my mind. I know what it is, but I always think and say it backward,
1: and I'm embarrassed by that. But I shared it with everyone, so now it's out there. So, so Dr. Ronstad, you're new to the show, but we've actually had listeners of our show propose that we create a cycling kit with the show's name and we just put PGC one alpha on it because apparently I mentioned that a lot in the show. Oh, yeah, you can just hang your hat on that. It's right there. Boom. That is our thing. Right. So yeah, let's let's go to the practical.
0: I want to know a few things. I asked the big question before what we were talking about in terms of strength training. We stated that hey, there's there's probably a threshold to the amount that's worthwhile. What are the recommendations, you know, be our strength coach right now if you're saying use strength to increase your endurance performance, what's
2: the recommendation? Yeah, so I would recommend to be within a range of repetitions that is between 4 and 10, uh, so heavy that you're able to lift from 4 repetition maximum to 10, two strength training sessions per week to have improvement and then one Session per week to maintain um, at least two, two to four uh, exercise for the important muscles for your sport, and then the thighs are, are often used the quads uh, for for most sports and uh, three sets.
0: Okay, so three sets
2: of three
0: to four exercises. Do that twice a week. At a load that you can lift, I I think that you said four to 10 times maximal, right? And so that's not a light load and you only lift it eight times. It's a load that you can max out. You're lifting it eight times and you couldn't do a ninth, so to say.
2: Yeah. And then uh, I I would start with uh, higher reps and then gradually decrease it as the race season starts.
0: Ah, Okay. Interesting. And I think in general... One of the big messages, and, and I don't want to, we're not ending the episode now, but a, a, a general message I think so far is that strength training doesn't really seem to impair cycling performance. No. Nope. You know, and one, one clarifying thing I want to know though is when we talk about strength training, are we talking about people doing a normal amount of endurance training and adding strength on top of it? Are we talking about people substituting endurance training for strength? Just for context in our conversation.
2: Yeah, I, I think there is evidence for strength training improving performance in both scenarios. So when, when we, in our research, there is, there is no difference in total training volume between the control group and the strength training group. So meaning that the, the strength training group is performing a, a little bit less endurance training than the endurance training group. So overall, they are, they are performing similar amount of training.
1: And what about timing? Should you be doing this right after a, a run or a ride? Should you be doing it before or should you be trying to separate them?
2: Yeah, I would try to get as long distance as possible between the endurance and the strength training. That being said, it's more important to do the strength training than not. So, so sometimes you just have to do it uh, before you're going out for a ride. And then it's, it's better to do it than not do it.
0: Sure. <laughs> I wonder if you can tackle this one for me. Oftentimes, when people ask, they say, "Should I do the strength training on a rest day?" And I usually say, "No, you shouldn't keep the rest day the rest day." I would rather have them doing on the same day that they're training, but maybe the ride is in the morning and the strength is in the evening to separate it by some hours. I don't know if you know I- any recommendations. There I- is there anything to that, or am I being a Trevor and just throwing out hogwash? I
1: make up everything.
0: That-
2: <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I, I'm not aware of any research on it. So what I would throw out is that the athlete can actually try both and then make up his or her opinion what's best for the individual. And so what
0: you're saying is, I'm not
2: wrong. No. <laughs> yeah, there, you heard it. You heard it again, man. This is my favorite guest.
0: He's just he's he's lining them up and knocking them down.
1: Yeah. My my <laughs> one comment there is going to be strength training is not rest as a matter of fact strength training can be more damaging to your legs than, than agree. going out on the bike or going for a run so uh, you know when i work with athletes and and they try to do the strength training on the recovery days i always say look you need a at least one day that is a true recovery day meaning you do nothing
0: yep yeah, i i agree and i i think that we can talk about it from energy systems we could talk about that say from uh, stress hormone release, or, or whatever else, but you know, to, to keep it high level, let's not lift on our rest days moving forward. If you want to be a researcher, maybe you can try it and see what happens.
1: But I'm still getting over that that original study that you're talking about, where they were doing hard endurance six days a week and strength training five days a week. That's how you did it. Yeah,
2: and and uh, those um, those two sessions were separated by two hours, Oof. except for except for one subject which only had 15 to 20 minutes break in between, it's, it's, it says in the paper.
0: I, I, feel, I feel like, you know, what, back in the day, oftentimes it was the researcher themselves were the subjects, right? I, I love looking, they used to include uh, oftentimes the initials of the subject in the, in the data, and you could easily match the subject's initials to the authors of the paper, you know? So that guy, you know, didn't have much time between uh, teaching and lunch, so he had to do it in the 15 minutes. He didn't have the time to uh, to wait.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I will say the the most brutal study I've ever heard about, which was never published, but they, they did this down in Australia. They wanted to simulate the Tour de France and see the effects on athletes. So they had these poor athletes Do 21 days in the lab, on the trainer, five to six hours a day. Yeah. Brett Ruby
0: Ruby did something out of uh, University of uh, Montana up in Missoula that was real similar. It took normal people and and, and induced them to three weeks of overload. uh, Well, (laughs) (laughs) that just doesn't sound fun. Anyway, we digress.
1: Well, we're getting to that time. So, Dr. Ronestad, you're new to the show. We always finish the show with what we call our our one minutes. So, we are going to give you one minute. And don't worry, we don't actually have a timer. So, this is on the honor system. But we are going to give you one minute to give basically your summary of our discussion or what you feel is the most salient point of this particular conversation. So, are you feeling ready? You ready to give us your, your, your summary?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. ready. <laughs> he was born ready, so go ahead. <laughs> okay, yeah, so the literature seems to um, indicate that strength training can improve both running and cycling performance. And uh, if you are going to do that, uh, you should perform um, two strength training sessions per week with a load that uh, you are able to lift between four and 10 times, uh, and you do three sets of uh, three to four exercise for the the legs, for the main muscles in your sport. And then it's also important to maintain this improvement in strength gains by approximately one uh, session per week. So
1: my take home here, I was actually really surprised at how recent all the research is, particularly on concurrent training, that it's only been a few decades that it's been going on. And there's still a lot that we don't know. And and so, Dr. Ronestad, thank you for all the research you've been doing on this because you have explained a lot that, that just wasn't known before. But it does seem the research is showing that there is a lot of benefits to doing the concurrent training. And this is one of those cases where I would say, do be careful about the recommendations you get, because I'm also surprised by the number of coaches who are still saying, don't do strength training, it's bad for you, when that's not really what the the research is backing up, and apparently those coaches are making up things as much as, as I do. So Rob... What's
0: your one minute? My one minute. My one minute might be closer to one minute. Not going to lie. My takeaway from this, my summary.
1: Oh, hold on. If you're claiming (sighs) you're going to be one minute, I'm timing this.
0: There's a five minute timer behind me if you want to use that. Okay, here we go. You got
1: your one minute. Go.
0: If you're going to strength train, you need to actually strength train. You have to be lifting heavy weights. There is a threshold to this where if you're just dabbling, if you're messing around, you're not going to get any benefit from it at the very least. There's probably no performance loss for cycling due to strength training. So there's no reason not to do it. And, and we didn't mention this, there's probably quality of life improvements, right? We know that bone mineral density increases. Your risk of fracture goes down because of the loading. Maybe overuse injuries will go down, increased metabolism, all of those things. So there's a lot of positive things with strength training. Even if you don't believe it, it'll improve your cycling. There are still other positives that we know. So ultimately everyone should be strength training and we should all be doing it hard. Now, we ought to either know what we're doing or get somebody to help us. You can hurt yourself. We are talking about lifting heavy, right? And and so make sure that you have a strength coach or know make sure that your form is good. Don't just jump into this because we're all weak endurance athletes, we're going to get sore. Don't hurt yourself. But if you involve this in your training, in shorter events you're going to get better. You're going to get better because you're going to have higher power outputs and in longer invents, you're going to get better as well, because that's where we're seeing these economy gains. So across any duration, across running, across cycling, across life, strength training is worthwhile if we actually engage in it.
1: Fantastic. Dr. Ronestad, we've been excited to get you on the show. It's been a real pleasure having you. Thank you for making this your first podcast. Thanks for inviting me.
0: You're the best. Thank you very much. We'll have you on again. There's so many different topics we could talk about and uh, I'm, I'm sure that it's going to be worthwhile every time. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of the Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Bent Ronestad, Joe Friel, Jess Elliott, Tom Scoinch, and Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.